Let's pray, then we'll get into the sermon. Father, thank you that um, you are good and you have purpose for us. I pray and I ask in Jesus' name that you would give us ears to hear today, minds that can comprehend, hearts with fertile soil, feet that want to run with obedience. Father, give us listening ears. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are continuing through the book of John. We are now in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But today we're going to deal with a really, really familiar scripture. Um... I'm sure most of you, if you've grown up in the church or been a part of the church or even just been around church people, you have heard this scripture. So um, there's a few things about this scripture, though, that I'm fairly certain some of you are not aware of, and that's why we want to um, talk about it. But the scripture that we're going to get to today says, who of you have not sinned cast the first stone. You guys familiar with this today's scripture, participating church, raise your hand. Now, how many of you guys have ever used that? You said, hey, look, you are judging me right now, or you are judging that person right now, so then you throw back to them, well, who of you have not sinned cast the first stone? I've used it. I like to use it a lot sometimes. Yet, many times in scripture, Uh, We have used it just to justify a person's action. We have used it to justify our actions. That being said, there's something in this scripture that, again, you might not be familiar with, and that is this. Many people debate its authenticity or placement within the scripture. So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 12 There is a debate about whether this is actually um, in the original canon, whether it should be or not. And um, I often have questions within my own mind of, should I even present that to the church? Should I even tell the church that there's a debate about whether this should be in the canon or not? Did any of you guys know that in here? Couple of you. See, Why do I not want to share that? Because it feels like sometimes, well, then people are going to start doubting the, the, yeah, the authenticity of the Bible and its truth. Well, the Bible is true, and I'm going to get to um, that here in a second. The Bible is true, and just because it's debated doesn't mean that this part of the scripture isn't correct, isn't where it's supposed to be. So in some of your modern translation, the story is there, or it has an asterisk beside it, or it has some kind of bracketing around it. If you have your um, Bible, your um, written Bible, not your electronic Bible, does anyone have asterisks or um, bars around 1 through 12? Let me see some hands if you got it. Okay, that's why it's there. We got some hands. Now, if you're just typically reading the Bible, you just don't even look at those things, do you? So, the asterisk will point out that this story 
isn't everywhere or the story should be moved in the book of John. So that's really what the debate is. The debate isn't whether Jesus would have done something like this or that Jesus did this. The debate is, is the placement of this story accurate here in the book of John? If we look back at some of the church leaders from years ago, you can think of Augustine or whoever else you want, many of them um, commented on the story, while others seem to possibly have never heard the story. So that tells us that, that the scriptures that they were reading, some of them heard about it, some of them didn't. So why wasn't it in the orig original canon? But um, while we look back at some of the patriarchs, some suggest that a certain group of people took the story out because they thought that Jesus was being too lenient towards the sin of adultery. Have you ever dealt with someone who doesn't like to talk about grace? Come on, somebody. You have those people who only want to point out your sin and your mess. They don't want to talk about it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what they end up doing is they just never talk about it. They only talk about works. They only talk about deeds. They only talk about righteous living, which are all a piece of the big story of Christ, but there's also grace. So the thought was that some people who did not accept God's grace and felt like you needed to live more um, righteously in the sense, now there's nothing wrong with pursuing righteousness, so please stay with me. We should pursue righteousness, we should pursue holiness, and actually it's not even a should, it's a requirement. We are required within scripture to pursue holiness, we are required within scripture to pursue righteousness and right living before Jesus. That being said, that's not how we earn our way to heaven, and these people, the, some of the patriarchs were afraid to preach grace. Because the moment you start preaching grace, then it almost gives you a license to sin, right? I remember listening to a preacher once, and he was giving me, um, it was a podcast, so I'm not sure if you even know him, but I was listening to him, and he, he, he was giving me licenses to sin, right? So you better believe when, when I was mad at the person who pulled out in front of me, I used my license. I did, I sinned. And I said, but I have my license to sin. And God quickly um, rebuked me, disciplined me, and taught me appropriately. So um, today, I don't want to talk about all the textualization of this scripture, but based upon my study, um, and the study of many others, I believe that this story did take place, and that it's rightfully where it uh, is supposed to be. So how do we figure this out though, right? How do, we, how do we say many people debate this story, but then now you're telling me that it's in scripture? Well, what I always like to do is I like the entirety, or I let the entirety of scripture interpret scripture. That's what we should do. So we take this story here, and we find God's, Jesus' heart, we find God's heart, and we say, we see this same heart all throughout the New Testament. So since we see the whole heart throughout the New Testament, then we, we understand that this story isn't um, made up. Nevertheless, um, John chapter eight opens up with Jesus teaching a crowd. 
of people who were coming and going into the temple. So we find that in verse one and two. We'll read it here in a second. Jesus begins to teach them, but not everyone, of course, was ready to hear him teach. Just like I would imagine this. Not everyone in here today is ready for me to teach. You're here on Sunday, but there's some who have listening ears, and there's others who are still thinking about dinner, or mowing, or landscaping, or an activity that they have to do, or you've already got work stress, and it's not even Sunday at noon. Anyone in here got work stress? Praise God. So, um, after that, um, a Pharise- uh, most of the Pharisees called for Jesus' death and were ready to set him up. Some were saying, um, never did a man speak this, um, the way that this man speaks. Others were responding, you have not been um, led astray, Jesus, have you? Um, one, um, another person, Nicodemus, who we're familiar with, he, uh, from uh, John chapter three, he entered into the discuss- discussion and suggested that no one should, um, should be prejudiced against one another without first hearing from them and knowing what he's doing. So Jesus was trying to, you know, they were scheming to corner him, and they're like, hey, slow down a little bit. We shouldn't be um, pushing this on him until we hear from him. So he's trying to pull back the reins. He's trying to defend it, Jesus a little bit. However, um, the Pharisees as a group were ready to capture Jesus no matter what. So three things that I'm going to try to help us learn today are this. There are dangers with judgmental spirits. Jesus builds righteousness on the basis of an experience with grace. Jesus is above the law. So John chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. How embarrassing for, like, number one. Here's what I want to say is, um, if, um, Macy and I got our dog Calvin when we were um, a year into marriage, and what we recognized is he needed a companion because we were often busy. So we contacted the breeder, and we said, hey, Calvin needs a companion. He, he needs a wife. He needs someone to talk to while we're gone. Um, so we ended up contacting the breeder, and they, they said, well, hey, we, we, we have another dog for you. And um, we, we have a girl, but we have this girl dog, but what we want you to do is we want you to partner with us in breeding them. And I'm like, well, I raised pigs growing up. I know how to do this, and Macy felt confident about that. So we ended up getting this other puppy, but then what Macy realized is she loves the dog. Like, I liked my pigs, but kind of the way I was trained in them is like, I only get to keep my pigs until fair, and then there's sausage on someone's table. That's the way it was for me. I didn't, I, so I never poured any emotions into liking Big Red or Porky or 
whatever its ear notch was. It was just like, oh, you're kind of cool. I'm not going to get any kind of attachment to you. Well, Macy on the other end, I, uh, I got her a pig when she was a senior in high school, and she raised it, and she loved it, and she never wanted to get rid of it, so she gave it back to the person we bought it from. So Macy has these attachments to animals much differently than I do. Now the point in that is we get the dog and now we get another dog and Calvin's still crazy. The companion never fixed him, it only made it worse. So um, that's why my hair's coming out of my head. It's the dogs. So, um, so what ended up happening is now we're in this contract but when we went out to pick up Callie, when we went out to pick her up, um, there was just uneasiness in my spirit, and I ended up talking to the family there, and um, the guy was just anti-religious, hated church, hated Christians, hated all these people, and then ends up, this is the long story short because I've shared it before, ends up finding out that I'm a pastor, and then just gets mad, and then we get the puppy and we leave. And, um, but we signed a contract before we left. And guess what the contract was? We are in agreement that we will be, uh, we will have three litters with you for eight years. Like within the span of eight years, we will have three litters. Well, we had one litter and then our dog got pregnancy induced glaucoma, so then we no longer had to have any litters because we didn't want to keep on passing the gene of glaucoma. But it created this friendship, this friendship that then we had to be in um, because of that. So then they started to like the kind of puppies that Calvin was creating, and um, Calvin was actually on um, Animal Planet's Too Cute, so then they can market, you know, Too Cute, you know, he was on here, and you can get a, get a puppy of a famous dog, which he's not really famous. Um, we don't get any royalties from that, so... Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, because of that, then we took Calvin. You're like, why are you sharing this story? I'm getting there. I'm setting it up. Keep on listening. If you would scoot to the edge of your seat, that would help. I literally know where I'm going, and I know sometimes I don't, but on this one, I do. No reeling needs to take place on this one. So, so what ends up happening is we have to take Calvin out to um, Indiana. Where's Notre Dame at? South Bend, South Bend thank you. Um, so, so we take him out to South Bend, we drop him off, we come back, and he's out there on a vacation for three days with some ladies. Um, spring break. So, what's so funny? Birds and the bees. Y'all age, you should be past it. <laughs> Show some maturity here. So, so we, we now are going to go pick up this dirty dog, right? We go out there and um, we start talking and having conversation. And you know, what is it? Maybe a four-hour drive, four-and-a-half-hour drive. I don't remember. But you always set these timelines by which you have to leave so that you can get home in time and it's a long drive and you don't like to be out past a certain hour because um, crazy drivers and everything else and tired drivers and our time that we wanted to leave was like 5 p.m. Well, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. 
And then at 8 p.m., I can finally find my way in to talk about Jesus. And um, I started to share with them what I do, what I'm about. And I said, well, you know, I'm actually a youth pastor, and this is what I've been doing, and love Jesus, and this is how faithful he's been in my life. Now, the only reason we're here is because we're in a contract with the breeder, right? And the breeder, the original breeder, doesn't like Christians. They're mad at Christians. They're frustrated. They're uh, hurt because their church hurt. So the only reason we're here is because of that. And the day that we went to Connecticut to pick up Callie, there was another person in that room. And that other person in the room said, my dad was a youth pastor. Well, now we're in um, Indiana, South Bend. And as I start to share this story um, about who Jesus is to me, she says, well, my dad was a youth pastor. And I said, well, that's weird because the day that we went out there, there was a woman out in Connecticut who said that her dad was a youth pastor in Virginia as well. And she said, well, that must have been me. I'm like, well, that's weird. She's like, because we moved from Connecticut here. And I said, well, that's interesting. And she said, I don't like God, though, and my husband doesn't believe in him. I'm like, why don't you like God? She said, because my grandfather was a senior pastor, my dad was a youth pastor in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I made some mistakes when I was in high school. I wasn't living holy. I wasn't living righteous. So what ended up happening is uh, my grandfather and my dad made me walk up from the back of the church and come up front, and I had to confess every sin to the church that I was committing as a teenage girl. And after I committed those sins, they kicked me out of the church. She said, why would I believe in God? Why would I believe in a good God? Why would I believe in, in, in this system of a church? And they said, Joey, I don't know what it is about you, but you seem to present a different Jesus, and I really appreciate that. See, it was all because of these silly dogs out of a contract that we've been able to have these conversations with people. Now, my point in that story is this, is a woman was just caught in adultery. And what had just had happened is they said, hey, we caught you in adultery. Come all the way up to the church. And what the Pharisees are trying to do is to have this woman be stoned to death for her sins. But Jesus has a different story. Jesus has a different law. Jesus is teaching, and the religious leaders and Pharisees want to trip him up. See, they're still out to get him. They're conniving, they're evil, they're thinking of ways to kill this man or to get him in trouble. Remember, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the Jews who were educated, popular, allegedly wise, and allegedly pure-hearted. They were the ones um, that would receive questions about the law because they were so educated. Again, just because they were religious, it didn't mean that they were godly. Amen? Just because you're religious doesn't mean that you're godly. Just because you're here today doesn't mean that you're godly. Just because you open up your Bible doesn't mean that you're godly. As we look at the whole New Testament, we see that the Pharisees are arrogant, ruthless, manipulative, and definitely hypocritical. 
these trusted men end up catching a woman in adultery. We really don't know who she is or what even happened. We just know that this unnamed woman was caught in adultery. Is she married? I don't know. Was she set up? I don't know. Did she participate by choice? I don't know. Did it actually happen? I think I know because Jesus tells us here in a minute, but at this point, I don't know. So how was she caught? You know, that's interesting. <laughs> how many of you guys have caught the woman in, a woman in an act of adultery? <laughs> like, you have to be in a weird place to do that, don't you? <laughs> or those people, like, set themselves up to be caught. So, um, it couldn't have simply been that they were just taking a stroll these Pharisees were just taking a stroll and walking together, and out of nowhere, they just end up catching the people in adultery. So this makes me think that three things happened. Number one, they participated in this to set the woman up. They were willing to use this woman and set her up so that they could get to the answer that they wanted with Jesus, because they wanted to corner Jesus. So there was were, there were so much hatred in them for Jesus that possibly they set her up. Or, even creepier, they knew about it and they just watched. They were watching from some room, some higher level, wherever they were, or they just watched. Or, how about this, maybe they made it all up and they lied. My biggest question, though, is not how they saw it and how they caught her, my biggest question is, where's the man? Like, the last I understood adultery as is that it requires two people, two participating people. If she was caught in adultery, why didn't they bring in the man? Why'd they only bring in the woman? Adultery by the term requires two people. According to the law of Moses, though, Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So who's to die? Both. Why is it then that the Pharisees who caught the woman in adultery there was a man there. Why is it they only brought the woman to be put to death? Both are to die. The man, according to um, Old Testament, the man would be strangled to death, and the woman would be stoned. Yet, in this case, the man is nowhere to be seen. So we should already see that there's really something strange going on here, isn't there? Are you guys sniffing that out? Anyone good at the game? Clue. <laughs> All right, you can help me figure this out later. So, something strange is going on here. If the Pharisees were really standing for the law, why didn't they bring in the man? So we must ask the question, were these men really committed to the law? 
or were they committed to hating Jesus? See, we have to ask ourselves that question too when we start pointing fingers at people. Do we, are we really standing for the law of Christ? Or are we standing against that person because we hate that person or we hate Jesus? We must be careful about pointing the fingers. Verse four, John chapter eight. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So we already see that they weren't bringing in this woman because they stand in for the law. They were bringing in this woman because they wanted a way to trap Jesus. It's really manipulative. But this is kind of where the scripture gets fun. The Pharisees most definitely thought out this plan. They had it in their mind what they wanted to do, how they were going to do it. See, if Jesus would have said they should put this woman to death, he would have potentially been seen as insubordinate to the Roman government. So Jews were not allowed to capitally punish based upon the rules that the Romans came up with. This is why Pilate had to agree to Jesus' crucifixion. So simply put, they were trying to say, hey Jesus, if you say that we need to kill this woman, stone her to death, then you're gonna probably be in trouble with the Roman government, right? So, so they're like, we've set up this perfect scenario. So if he doesn't answer this correctly, he's gonna be in trouble with Rome. And then the other side is, if Jesus would have said nothing, then Jesus would have, breaking the, would have been breaking the law of Moses. You see that scenario? You've been cornered. It's like um, when you do the dishes at home and your parents are like, did you do the dishes? And you don't know how to answer. Because you might have did them wrong. You might have did them bad. You might have had some cheese still on the bowl because you really didn't wash it good. So you just don't know how to answer the question. So you say, what do you mean did I wash the dishes? <laughs> wash the dishes? and you try to feel him out. Jesus has no feelers here, but he recognizes that he's cornered. If he says kill her, then he has problems with Rome. If he says don't kill her, he has problems with the law of Moses. So essentially, they were ruthless enough to humiliate a woman as a reason to get rid of Jesus. They thought that they had set him up with a perfect scenario. Human beings were ruthless enough to use another woman and humiliate her to get at someone. Let's continue. Verse six. But Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who was, who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, 
he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You know, many people have always wondered, what was Jesus writing on the ground? You know, an interesting scenario. We should try that sometime. Just someone starts talking to us and we just bend down to start writing on the ground. Many people uh, question what, what scriptures was he writing. Was he writing Old Testament scriptures? And then other people say, well, maybe he was writing the sins of the men. Maybe he was writing the men's name or the man's name. What was happening while he was writing their names? Either way, it appears that while Jesus was stooping down, standing back up and stooping back down, what he was doing is he was possibly collecting his thoughts. See, not everything that happens in life requires you to immediately give a response. The more that, uh, or the longer that I'm married, um, what I realize is this is, an immediate response is not always needed. Because what, what I want, or, or ever needed, or wise, a response sometimes just isn't needed. So Macy and I found ourselves in a discussion the other day where I just said, hey, look, it's just best if we don't talk about this. And she's like, yeah, I agree. Because both of our emotions are um, sitting on, you know, two ends, two different ends right now. It's just like, it's not even worth it. Any marriage ever been there? Any marriage ever not been there? Oh, man, you just let it spew out. Boy, you're running. So Jesus is kneeling down, possibly collecting his thoughts as he's writing certain things on the ground. And here's what I want to say again. It's, judge, or it's dangerous to have a judgmental spirit. Jesus then simply throws it back into their courts and says, Any one of you who is without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus is telling these Law followers, right? To follow the law. That's what he's saying with that statement. That's what we have to understand. Jesus wasn't permissing sin here. He wasn't saying, hey, because look, if that's what Jesus was doing, then it would be a free-for-all within the church and in America. Right? So I am rebuking the notion that we can use that as a reason for us to sin or for others to sin anymore. Amen? You don't like that, do you? We cannot throw the scripture around to justify my sin or another person's sin because that's not what Jesus was saying with this statement. Jesus was saying with the statement, since you are a law follower, then follow the law. Because what was the law? Deuteronomy 17, 7, right here. This is the law. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from amongst you. Since you guys saw the sin, I want you, I want you, the one who hasn't sinned, to cast the first stone according to Scripture. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus is saying, okay, law follower, follow the law. Do it. What he's really saying is, you're being a hypocrite right now. Because you too, if, if, if we all were to follow the standard of the law, you would be put to death as well. Because we understand what Jesus' heart of 
um, adultery is, right? He says, they say to you that if you sleep with another woman or someone else's spouse that you're an adulterer. But what do I say? Even if you lust after another woman, you have committed adultery. You want to you know what I um, have to say in here? We have a room full of adulterous people. I could hear a pin drop. Now look, don't hear me pointing the finger. I'm simply saying we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we can't use that as an excuse. Jesus isn't giving them an excuse to sin. Jesus is saying Hey, follow the law. He's holding them to a higher standard. That's always what Jesus does. Jesus never makes, gives you a reason to sin. He always ups the ante within your life. And we see that within the New Testament. He says, look, the law, this is what the requirements used to be, but guess what I require now? I require everything from you. That's upping the ante in the New Testament. We always say, man, it would be hard to follow everything in the Old Testament, New Testament's even harder because it's everything. Amen, yep. But there is also a little bit more going on here. John 8, 7 uh, has been used so many times to justify one's actions. It's been said, let the person who's truly sinless be the one who passes the judgment. So then guess what we all do? We all get in these holy huddles we're trying to minister to someone, and we're trying to bring life and righteousness and holiness and right standing with God, so then we just all say, well, I haven't sinned, or sorry, I'm a sinner, so I can't pass judgment. And then you go to the next person across the room, well, I'm a sinner, so I can't pass judgment. And then you go to the next person, well, I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And I used to have friends who told me this. They said, quote, I just got done doing premarital things with my girlfriend, and then I went to the hospital, no, not the hospital, the mall, the Tuttle Mall, and I prayed for people's healing, and they got healed. And I'm like, God doesn't reward poor behavior like that. Like, that's training bad behavior. We must teach righteousness and holiness in a pursuit of Christ. So some, um, so we say none of us are sinless, so the thought would be that no one can rebuke someone. No rebuke can ever come because all of us um, are sinners. Now if that were true, it would be a madhouse everywhere. John seven twenty four says this, Jesus, Jesus told his hearers that they should not judge according to appearance but with righteous judgment, right? Righteous judgment, right judgment. Deuteronomy 19 tells us that we must not testify with malice or malintent. If they do, they will receive the punishment of the person they are accusing. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, remember, before you pick up this stone, you better make sure that you are morally qualified to do this. 
Because if you are accusing with wrong intent, with the wrong intent, they would be digging their own grave because they'd be put to death, right? Deuteronomy 19 tells us not to testify with malice or malintent or that same punishment will be put on us. So Jesus is challenging their intent. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? I want to challenge your intent with things as well. Why do you rebuke people, or why do you not rebuke people? See, sometimes we don't rebuke people because we just want to be a people pleaser and we want to be liked. We're allowed to make judgment within people's lives. We just better make sure that our heart is aligned with Scripture. Because I'll tell you this, if um, when Randy and Jordan start to allow their um, kids to date, if someone of an inappropriate age looking like a punk comes in, are they not supposed to use discernment and judgment and say, I'm not going to let you go? We're allowed to use judgment within Scripture. It's supposed to happen. But Jesus is saying, look, you guys aren't using judgment here. You're just being judgmental and you're being manipulative here. So please understand, Jesus wasn't dismissing judgment against those who commit adultery. That's not what's going on here. He's challenging the motive of the Pharisees by which they brought the offense. Amen? So please understand that Jesus wasn't dismissing judgment of whatever sin we have committed. Sin has consequences, and one day we will face God for that. And I hope that every single one of us in this room is covered by the blood. So Jesus builds righteousness on the basis of grace. It's dangerous to have a critical spirit and you might be a Pharisee. Verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? No one condemned you. No, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus exposed their wrongdoing of the law, and now they all walk away. They had nothing to say. Their great plan of cornering Jesus and getting him put to death somehow dissipated. The point we see all throughout the New Testament is that righteousness is a gift from God and justice should come from a place of grace. That's what Jesus is doing here. Judgment comes from a place of grace. See, he didn't just let her sin go on. He told her, hey, go and sin no more. If we treat it any other way, then we are acting like Pharisees. If we treat people's sin any other way, we're acting like Pharisees. Justice comes from a place of grace. So Jesus establishes, establishes himself above the law. 
He tells the woman, neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He's telling her, hey, you've encountered me. You've, you've seen these people walk away. Now go and sin no more. Don't go back to your old lifestyle. See, this is, this is where we're supposed to rebuke people. Jesus is rebuking her, right? We get into these holy circles. And I know I keep on going back to this, but we get in these holy circles and we say, I'm not gonna judge you. Who am I to cast the first stone? Well, Jesus says, hey, look, go and sin no more. He addresses the issue and he says, don't do it anymore. Go on with your life. You're forgiven. Do it no more. Rebuke some people, amen? Do it with a pure heart. Do it with a right heart. Do it from a place of grace. Don't go looking for people today to find on Facebook and rebuke. You'll be the Pharisee. So, he didn't tell the woman, neither do I can condemn you. Go and do whatever you want. Jesus is telling the woman this. I establish righteousness for everyone. And if anyone wants it, they can have it by his grace. By his grace. By his grace. See, but his grace wasn't um, to go and do whatever you wanted. His grace was to still go and sin no more. That was his grace. To go and sin no more. At least leadership's aware of this. I think of Paul, right? And Paul says, hey, I prayed three times. I prayed three times for God to take the thorn in my flesh. This is another scripture I used wrong. God, take this away from me. And it didn't happen. God, take this away from me. And it didn't happen. God, take, how about this? I've prayed for certain things in my life probably 500 times. Anyone else there with me? I prayed 500 times and God still didn't take it from me. And the reason why he didn't take it from me is because I wasn't, I didn't understand grace appropriately. See, for many years of my life, the way that I understood grace was this, is grace means that God just does it all and covers me and I can do whatever I want. So when I heard Paul's story, I inserted my problem. So maybe my problem was stealing pencils from my classmate. So I just had this OCD problem, right? So first period, swipe one. Second period, swipe one. And that wasn't my problem. But maybe, maybe that's what it was. So then I prayed, God, let me do it. So then when I understood that scripture, what it meant was God's grace is sufficient for me meant that he was permissing me to keep on doing it because his grace covered it. Anyone ever felt that way about that scripture? God's grace is sufficient for me just means that He's just gonna do it and forgive me because I'm wretched. Here's why God didn't take it from Paul. My grace is sufficient means, Paul, I've given you everything that you need to overcome it. We don't like that aspect of grace, do we? God's grace has empowered us to be in a position to have everything we need to overcome our sin. 
So that means with the creator of everything living inside of me, I now possess the ability to no longer steal pencils. See, but what we have thought of grace as is just, he's just going to do it. He's just going to forgive me. He's going to keep on allowing me to live my sinful life. And I don't have to take any ownership because won't he do it? That's what we think. Paul had all the ability, and that's why God didn't take it. Likewise, when God gives this woman grace, he's saying, go and sin no more. My grace is sufficient to you. I've given you everything you need to live a righteous and holy life. And I say to you guys today, God has given you everything that you need to overcome the sins that you're dealing with today. Amen? He says, go and sin no more. See, when we run towards God, if this is my past life right here, when I run towards God, the more that I run towards God, the further I get from my past, right? The more that I get away and I go, go away from those things and sin no more, the further I get away from it and the closer I get to God, repentance. See, if I keep on sitting around my mess and sitting around my mess and saying God's, God's just gonna forgive me, God's just gonna forgive me, then I keep on messing up. And many sins that I felt like, I mean just praying as, as, as a young boy, God, I don't see how I'm ever gonna overcome these sins. God has been faithful in my life and many of them I have not dealt with for years. And the reason was is because I was rebuked in my understanding of grace. And the grace was I have to take ownership in the partnership with what God is doing in my life. Amen? God's asking this woman to take ownership of her life and to go and sin no more. God's asking you and I to take ownership in our life and to go and sin no more. Now people say, well scripture says, um, scripture says that God will not give you more than that you can handle. That's not a scripture. A lot of people say that, but that's not a scripture. Scripture says, you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. So every time that you're tempted, every time that you're tempted, scripture tells us that you're not gonna be tempted beyond what you can bear beyond what you can overcome. Every, every time we're tempted to sin, God has given us the grace, the ability to walk away from it. And as he's releasing this woman to go and sin no more, guess what he's saying? I've given you the ability to overcome every sin in your life that you have to sin no more. Now, am I saying that I'm sinless? I'm not. I'm a sinner. But I also understand this, that I have the ability to continually conform to the image of Christ and to try to live a righteous life towards him. And I'm not going to just use um, this scripture as an excuse to sin. And I challenge you to not use this scripture as an excuse to sin or allow others to sin in your life as well. Amen? Don't sin no more, um, yeah. 
But his grace wasn't to go and do whatever. His grace was still to go and sin no more. And here's, here's uh, one other statement, and then we're out of here. Um, don't sin no more because you fear the stoning. Sin no more because you are saved by grace. Amen. Just the love, the love that Jesus has for you right now. You're like, Jesus doesn't love me. I'm wretched. I'm horrible. How, how could the creator of the universe care for me and love me? Like, I don't even have heaven's attention because I'm so horrible. We've all probably thought that. God doesn't care about me. God's not thinking about me. God just knows how horrible I am. If you didn't have heaven's attention, or if you question whether you have heaven's attention, God's attention, then just remember that Jesus was willing to come from heaven down to earth to die on the cross for you. Amen? You have heaven's attention today. Jesus is watching you today. Jesus is in love with you today. He loved you so much that he was willing to go for the cross for you. One author says it this way. The story points us to the message of the whole New Testament. We are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our own lives produces hypocrisy and doctrine, uh, doctrinary cruel, cruelty. Jesus came into the world to provide that grace through his cross and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience with his grace. So come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. Amen challenge you that with those sins in your life, those top three sins, that, that number one sin that you just deal with each day, I want to provide you an opportunity right now in the silence just to talk to God about it. Because you know what? All the sins that God's taken away from me, I don't take that for granted. These sins that I dealt with from a young boy to mid-twenties, guess what? I don't take that for granted. I thank God daily. Because I know the moment that I just let my guard down, the moment that I don't focus on Christ, you better believe where I'll be. Amen? I'm gonna close my eyes and I'm just gonna give you guys a second to thank God for his faithfulness and then to lift those things up under your breath or out loud, whatever you wanna do. Lift those things up to God and say, God, may your grace be um, sufficient in my life in this area. Empower me Empower my family to walk out in righteousness and holiness in Jesus' name. So you guys just take this moment and uh, talk to God about those.
Father, today we thank you that you have given us the grace. You've given us everything we need to serve you with all of our time, with all of our being, with all of our focus and effort. Father, we just declare your grace and your empowerment over our thoughts, over our interactions with our family members, with our friends, with other believers. Father, we declare your grace over um, our time, even after church, at work, that you are number one. Father, we declare your goodness and your empowerment and your grace over our worry over finances and the future that we would just trust you. Father, we declare your goodness over lust for money and people and things. Empower us, Father, to pursue righteous living. Father, um, our desire to be angry and mad and point fingers, you've given us the power to walk away. Father, um, may we focus on you, may we, may we fight, and may we wrestle, Father. It's not with flesh and blood, but it's with the unseen world. May we battle today, Father. May we not give up. May we recognize that you have empowered us to battle. With all things, Father, by prayer and supplication, may we present our request to you. May we run like Joseph. Father, tender our hearts where we've accused and pointed fingers. Break down walls of offenses. And may we walk out of here as changed being. Father, I pray that you would give us a double portion of the Holy Spirit right now. You guys just recognize that you need more of God. Just even agree with that right now. Father, increase yourself in my life. Give me a double portion. Give me more of you. Father, I ask for more of you. I ask for more of you for this congregation and in our communities. For this, uh, for this world, more of you, less of us. Father, may your fire refine us. In Jesus' name. So um, be blessed. Love you guys. And... Um, you are dismissed. <laughs>